Hello, everybody. You are listening once again to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Carlo Mafuz. Carlo is a Renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur and a product development executive in the healthcare ed tech space. And he has a deep understanding of technology. He works developing products to improve patients' outcomes and driving change at organizations, teams, and individuals. Carlo is joining me today to discuss his book, Reality Check in Pursuit of the Right Questions. This is a really interesting book, and I think you're going to love this conversation. Carlo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ross. It's great to be here. Yeah, and so I wanted to start out. I don't we don't always go in this direction here on the show, but I think with the respect to this show and and this book and what led you to writing this book and your approach to it and and the way in which you go about it, uh, having the listeners hear a little bit about your background, your personal background, but also your professional background and the things you focus on in the professional setting will be really good context for them. So if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to this. Sounds great. My good starting point would be I'm originally from Lebanon. So that's where I was born and spent most of my life. I immigrated to the US almost now 13 years ago. I'm heavy on the technology side. So I started my career and with computer science, game design, actually initially and doing some more graphics modeling for video clips and then transitioned slowly into software development. And that was the major thing I took on specifically in the healthcare simulation industry which means basically working with healthcare practitioners on training modalities and providing a learning management solutions that they can, you know, work against. And then for the past decade or so, I've been in different roles along those lines and built a SaaS platform over the years, transitions out of that into more leadership roles and currently mostly focusing on technology partnerships within the scope of my current organization. And on the side, I've done different avenues. One aspect of it, I kind of got involved really into classical music, started with a classical guitar at a certain stage, almost six years ago. And then that moved into some opera singing and then being a board member and as well a partner on a nonprofit, which is dedicated to bringing unrecognized compositions, modern compositions and highlighting them in the best way. So I've dabbled in multiple areas, technology as a base, but I have had interests in music, graphics, and the different modalities all the way UI, UX, and as well, more on the development side and like understanding how we change and how we develop ourselves. And that kind of came to be a little bit more in the book. Excellent. Yeah. And to going to the book, I think one of the kind of statements that you write in the intro that sort of summarizes a lot of what you're working toward throughout the book. And when I read the title, Reality Check in Pursuit of the Right Questions is the, the subtitle there. And you write, the right questions direct our attention to the problems that matter most, whereas the wrong questions are aimed at distraction, right? So it's really that process, though, of taking the time to investigate, and we'll talk about the context in which we're working, right, and what's currently available to us and the impact we can make. But that concept of saying there's a big difference between the right and the wrong questions. I guess there's that old cliche that goes around, there's no bad questions. But realistically, when we're really thinking about trying to make progress, improvement, trying to transform an organization or in our personal life, 
there are things that kind of distract us from where we need to be going. And there's others where you're leading us in the right direction. So if you would talk about that a little bit and how you, when you were going through the process of writing the book and you interviewed many, many people throughout it, how you sort of started to see that difference between, okay, here's what it looks like when we're tapping into the right questions. And this is not really taking us to our goal. Absolutely. It's not that simple. And at the same time, it's that simple. I would say the seed of the idea and this delineation between right and wrong came around the time when COVID hit and we were faced with a lot of uncertainty. And the question started surfacing in my head, but really crystallized when there was a major explosion in Lebanon and suddenly time stops. Like it was something major which has happened, which impacted me personally and the family. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but the moment that hit me, there was only one question in my mind. And I was like, okay, how did we get from being busy in your day-to-day life, worried about projects, deliveries, fine, you name it, almost a lot of things that are pulling our attention. And suddenly all of them are no longer important. Like you move from this significant level of inputs, which are all drawing your attention and suddenly they all are meaningless and only one question remains. And in that case was like, is your loved ones okay? And I think we all witnessed that in different occasions and usually in the negative ones, not necessarily in the positive light, it's much easier for us to make that distinction. So that kind of what spurred the question. And as I started investigating and digging further, initially, As you said, there is no bad question, but then what is right? What does right mean? What does it quantify? What would that definition of right be so that it's only focused and honed in on the areas which should be most prevalent to us at this moment? And that's where I started attaching this notion of understanding versus knowing. And the reason is when we we have too many stimuli and we are in the midst of everything, we have a lot of assumptions and predictions happening in the back head of our mind, like trying to control the whole situation. And that gives us this sense of security in a way, but at the same time, distract us from really what is important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's usually what ends up happening. And that's why when we have a severe event that happens completely on the opposite side of it, we automatically get pulled out. And a good example would be the pandemic, like how we shifted our attention. And the reason is, I would say, is like a question which you don't know the answer for, but you seek, you're seeking it to get more clarification truly and authentically without pretext and context is the right question because there is this aspect of curiosity. There's this aspect of embracing ambiguity. You're trying to reach out to, to get something. And I think that aspect is really key and differentiates it from a lot of the questions where we usually ask knowingly to some extent where we're going or what would that look like? And honestly, are less of value. Like they might be validating our own opinions or assumptions or working along those lines, but not necessarily something which is at the highest priority. When we talk about these there's three key elements in the reality check. And this is how you have the book structure part one, two, and three, and the elements being a context, time, and observer. And I wanted to go through each of them really briefly because we're going to 
dive further into this, but to give listeners an understanding of the context, which is it is for the conversation, right? And what these three key elements are and starting. So can you maybe just go through each one and just give a brief description or definition of how you're defining each of those terms in the book? Because that'll be very helpful as we talk more about the concepts. Absolutely. So if we start with context specifically, context I consider as, if you think about it, like different lenses. So Mm -hmm. the context creates the environment, create the conditions, if you want, create the constraints. So if you look at any question without the context that it provides, then you are lacking, if you want the framework, you're lacking what's around it. And I think context colors almost everything we see, and it automatically shifts the perception from positive to negative to neutral. It's always in reference and relevant to the context. So context is like a keyhole that you're looking through. And as you put different lenses on, I would say you see different elements with what's happening to the environment, to the problem, anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. I focus a lot on time. Because I think time controls today a lot of the narrative of how we predict, how we assume, how we see everything that's happening. And the concept specifically of time, when I talk about it, I talk about like past and present and future. And it's really key because in the past, we it's all what we know. In the future, it's what we think we know. And then the present is really the best kind of input that we have. So time is key because if we frame everything within the context of what we can already know, then it's stale. It's not current. If we frame it everything on what we think we know, it's as well not accurate. It's an assumption as best as a an outcome which was it's just not clear. While the current, which is now the present, is really the best read we can have on the context. Right. And the last element I is the observer. And that's a very interesting one. And I didn't say us as people. I said observer specifically, because there is this notion of not only observing our behaviors and actions and how we see. I think in the tree of this, at the end of the day, when we're dealing with questions or we're dealing with problems we're trying to fix or prioritize or anything of that, there's the context, there's the time element, but then there is who is participating or observing it. And I think the observer is key because as well, there is biases and perceptions which are inherently built in the observer and how you read any situation is as well influenced who's reading it. It's like there is a direct correlation. So that creates the last component. And then I think the whole three together, once they are pulled apart and unpacked, allows you to create more reality check moments. Excellent. Yeah. Listeners, make sure to put a pin in those, especially the time definition here, because we'll come back to that. But, you know, the way in which Carla was kind of defining time throughout this process between the past, present and and the future is, is really relevant to our understanding here. And, you know, the thing that stands out to me about each of these is that depending on the way you choose to use them, they can be used as an excuse or an impediment for why not to do something, right? Or yeah. as a productive guide or a tool for achieving it. Just to throw out the one example within context, you use a, you have a quote at the beginning of that section of the book, priority is a function of context from Stephen Covey. And you had written earlier in the book about how a, re- a reality check is a way to do a check on competing priorities, right? And we have all these various things we need to do or we want to do. And 
if we understand the context in which we're operating, we can then prioritize and we can understand that. But in other ways, context is sometimes used as an explanation of why we can't do something that maybe we should do or need to do. And it's, it's not actually that prioritization to say, well, here's what we decided. These are the things that are important to focus on. These aren't, here's the process. Same with time, right? Everybody, time can always be a major impediment to things we want to do. And it can also be a great element to focus us and to have us understand, again, this is what we can do now. These are the resources that are at our disposal. Here's how we make progress. And the observer, our understanding of ourselves and the way in which we position ourselves to how we can make that difference. And so uh, did you find that as you work through it to see, all right, there's those subtle shifts in each of these. And sometimes there's almost, it's almost a common way. And it goes back to even the term reality check, which as the way you're using it as this productive tool for gaining an understanding of ourselves, our situations, the change we want to make, the things we want to do. Whereas there's another common usage of reality check, which is kind of, you need to snap into reality, right? <laughs> okay, you think you're doing this thing, but your head is in the clouds. You can't really do that. And I, I like the way that you're flipping that in the other way and saying, no, let's determine the reality of what we can achieve when we better understand ourselves and our circumstances. Pretty much. I think it's a great way you described it. I think it, it, it is, there is a bit of the snapping, but there's the snapping as well in, in a good sense that you can use, not necessarily just as a reflection on, as a surprise. Or um, I think reality checks usually happen naturally a lot, a lot of the times when we are kind of surprised. And as I said, it's usually through negative environmental things that push us and drive us, like certain pressures. But I think why can't we like use them on demand? Like why can't we formulate and be able to capture really what's happening without necessarily re requiring an external stimuli, like and usually an aggressive one in that manner to make them happen? And I think that's really the power here is if it's something more along the lines that we can always be in it, like we're always in a like imagine a, in a world where you're constantly in reality check, like every second, every moment, that's always the reality you're experiencing it. Then I think every decision, everything you do becomes much more relevant, becomes a priority. It's not a matter that it's a one-time thing which happens like every five years or once a time when something major happens. It's, it's a more of a constant thing that's happening continuously. And I think there is a lot of power in that. Yeah, absolutely. And so with respect to this concept of time, right, the focus on the present on the now, yeah, um, there's a lot more to, to get into there. But when you talk about the reality check moments and being in the now and, and you, but you're right to be in the moment, we need to be prepared, which when you think about that makes a lot of sense. But sometimes again, it goes against the common usage. Sometimes if somebody would say, well, I'm just kind of living in the moment can indicate I'm sort of living extemporaneously without a plan. But the reality is to be in the moment means to, to focus on the moment, right? If we're not in the now, we miss the moment, as you said. Yeah. And all of that requires being prepared. I'll give an example, which is 
podcasting here, right? The more I do it and the more experience I get, the more I can really be in the now with my guests because I've practiced. I know what it means to prepare, right? You write about also like let go of what we know, the past. So you could just be, because it's all those things that once you know it, you don't have to think about it anymore. You just, you're confident that you know it. It becomes second nature and you can say, okay, I'm just focusing on what's happening in front of me. I'm listening. <laughs> um, don't think, listen as you write. And I can just kind I can react and adapt and be nimble and make decisions based on new inputs and stimuli based on what I'm and experiencing because I'm prepared for the moment. So I can just be here. And this is, I mean, I think this is an important concept and it's another way to reframe and rethink the way that we typically almost would think of it being there being a dichotomy between people who are very prepared and people who are just kind of go with the flow right yeah. and in reality that's not necessarily the case because when you make sure that you're prepared for those moments you can appear right sometimes the most prepared people are the people who make it appear easiest and the most natural because they're no longer thinking or going through the mechanics. They can just be. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to describe this a little more because it, it really gives a, a real understanding, I think, of the when. Like when can we seize those moments and when can we take advantage of opportunities and the chance to make the right decisions at the right times because we're present and observing and we're not missing that chance. I'm, I'm glad you definitely captured that. I, I think it's a really key aspect, actually. And there is a bit of a dichotomy in the preparedness and flow. In most cons like in most times where we describe them, there is always seems to be as if there is a dichotomy. It's like I'm either in the flow or I'm either prepared. Right. But the way I think about it is if you actually condense all the preparation. So if you, let's say you're preparing, 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 and then when the moment is always happening, you're in flow, like basically you're ready. So usually, and a good example, you see people like who are performing singers or they just seem like flawless, like, right? You cannot even realize how much preparation came into be, et cetera. But if you think about it as well, is then when we, if we condense and collapse all that, you're always in a preparation mode, like literally in every moment you're preparing for what's happening next if you think about it and that's and that's why the time element is really key here you ask the question is when like when do i prepare and when i'm in the moment so why not at the same time and the reason i say that i give a, an interesting example from understanding what is the measure of now like we assume that now is instant for all of us but if we say now between here and mars based on physics, actually now between here and Mars is 15 minutes. So the duration now is a duration. So if we just expand that for a second, any now there is much more that is happening than just an instant which flashes almost instantly, which means as well, consequentially, if we think about preparedness and readiness to just flow, Every moment, whatever you're doing in every moment is in actually preparing you to what's the moment which is going to happen after. If we think of time as sequential, if we think of time as linear, because today in the way we conceive time as a construct and how the cycle goes and everything, we see it as linear. So it means that there's a prepare and then after the prepare, there is something happen which we're prepared for, right? 
But if we condense that very quickly, then we can start to realize that every moment we're preparing to what's happened next, which means in every moment we're as prepared as we could be for it simultaneously. That does not mean, and I think that shift is key because that does not mean you don't prepare or you don't do anything. You're always preparing and you're always in the moment at the same time. And that's sometimes hard to break because realistically, now I'm as ready as I could be to some extent. Once you're in the moment, you're as ready as you could be. And everything you do in the next moment, you will be as ready as you could for it. It sounds a little bit metaphysical, but if we expand it at the end of the day and we say like in a span of the time we have, everything I'm doing now, I'm preparing what's going to happen next. And simultaneously, when that happens, I'm as ready as to receive it. Then it becomes much easier to realize that we're never in a mode of not preparation. It's just the aspect of shifting the mindset to realize everything I do is actually part of what is making me ready for the next step. And when I'm doing it, I was as prepared as I could be because otherwise I would have done it. And consequently, these things become like a cycle, which is always correlated to each other. Absolutely. And you mentioned the singer, right? And I, I think an interesting thing to think about is we've probably all seen some examples of a singer in a concert who sort of like forgets some of the words to their own song. And you think, how could they do that? They've been singing this song for decades, but they haven't thought about them in many, many years because yeah. they're just in the flow. And in order to be able to sing and play the guitar and have the choreography on the stage all at the same time. You can't be thinking about it, right? You have to just be in the moment and be prepared to be able to do all those things and have them come together. Same with a basketball player who's shooting free throws in the biggest yeah. game of the season with every, you know, all the pressure on them. They just have to be prepared to be able to do that because if they're thinking about, oh man, if I miss these, we lose and everybody's shouting yeah. at me and this thing, you, there, there's no way you can, you don't have the cognitive load to be able to take that all in at once. It takes that preparation before you get there. And the, the same thing is true in these kind of situations because the moments and the time and the now, the now is it's variable how much the now is. The now could be 10 seconds. It could be a moment in interaction with somebody where the window opens and you have a chance to say the right thing to them. or it could be a much longer time, but you don't know. And if you're not ready and observant to it, and one of the things that is going to be relevant to a lot of our listeners, and it was when I'm going back to your even bio, right? You described as an intrapreneur, really relevant way for a lot of people to think about themselves being, having that innovative entrepreneurial mindset within an organization and saying, okay, we really need to understand our context because we can't, we're not in control of the context, but the better we know all the context that's around us. And we know the things that we're trying to accomplish and achieve, and we can have that mentality toward the impact we want to make because we're looking at the right opportunities to do that. And that's for so many people knowing that making an impact and making a change is not contingent upon your role or title or that you need to be the one that's in charge of everything. It just, it's about being able to seize those opportunities as they come and knowing what that takes. So I think that's all really ties back into that question of time. Another thing that uh, may be, you know, counterintuitive to a lot of people, but that's really central to the concepts in this book is where you say to ask the right questions is not to look for an answer, right? That asking the right questions will get you closer to the answer, but 
that's not the point of why you're asking them or you're not trying to at least force that. Can you explain that a little bit? I want to explain it in the context of something you said a minute before is mm-hmm. on the defining of titles and like who you are and how you interact within your organization, et cetera. This is where I find the limitations on what we put on the selves and how we identify with ourselves. So we say, I am engineering manager, or I'm, I am the marketing specialist, which means that automatically everything is outside of my scope to innovate mm-hmm. or create. And the reality is those are nothing but just, I call them past holds. I call them like, this is something in the past, which could have defined you because you've done it before. Like you're good at it, you've done it, but that does not mean that describes all you are. And I think that takes us to this point where I like this distinction on the right right questions, and especially it gets you close to the answer because you can never truly get to an answer. If we can accept that, and then the reason I say that, because there is never 100% an answer. What would be an answer in this decade if we just blow it up on a macro kind of scale? And the next decade might no longer be a relevant answer. And we see that a lot these days with how quickly technology is coming into play and a lot of the dimensions changing. What we thought it was like the absolute truth one day, the second day is not an absolute truth. And that keeps changing and it's going to keep changing. And I think that's the power of I think the world and us that we're continuously changing. We're never, yes, something might be true to a certain period of time. And we all agree on, people agreed on that the earth is like basically flat for a long period of time. And then it was like, oh, it's not flat. And then probably we realized some other dimensions which we couldn't recognize because at the end of the day as well, the means of our perceptions are limited by what we know today. You know, as we expand on them and quantum physics is even changing how we how we describe matter and everything else. And that's going to keep changing. So that's why I think it's very key to understand that we're always seeking to get as close to an answer, but not the answer. Because mm-hmm. the second we say we're an, we reach an answer, it means that uh, that's it, we closed. Like we, we fell in the trap that it could never be except that answer, which is actually always false anyway. I think that's sometimes very hard to grasp and makes the biggest problems. Even in the context of work, you, let's give an example. You have a conflict and then most conflicts arise because you think what needs to be done is different from everyone else or that's the right solution, period, right? But realistically, the right solution or the right questions to ask to basically figure that out are modified and changed the second you accept that my answer might be not fully true. Right. I would say 90% of the time, it's not true. Parts of it might be true. Certain segments might be true. Your opinion and biases and experience, if you want to call it that as well, all play a factor into it. So as start as you remove that as a bottleneck in your questioning, you'll start asking the right questions. Then you're open to understanding other views. Then you're open to finding something which probably will surprise you. And I think that's the kind of a bit of the uncertainty playing here where you were, you're going to explore and get to something which you never even knew was an option. And I think that's very powerful. Excellent. Well, that answer is going to lead really nicely into this next section here. I want to do a little bit of a rapid round and go through a handful of different mindsets and competencies and ask you how important are they to being able to go through these reality checks? And then you can add why they're important. Just kind of brief answers on each, but touching on some things that stood out to me. And first one is comfort with ambiguity. Comfort with ambiguity is key, I think. And the reason why is we are creatures who love certainty. We love what we know. It makes us safe. 
And we will never be able to go beyond or breach new territory if we don't get comfortable with the feeling. And I say comfortable with the feeling or comfortable with ambiguity because you're never going to get to a point where you're fully comfortable. Mm-hmm. That's the other realization is you will never get to a point where you're like, oh, this is comfortable. It will always feel uncomfortable. It's just a matter of kind of accepting it, like realizing, yes, that's what's happening and just sticking with it. That the ambiguity will remain. It d- doesn't disappear, but you're able to still breach it. And I think that's the power of it. Yeah. How about patience? Patience. I think patience is key, but I like the dichotomy of patience and impetuous, actually. Yeah. I think in every case, we need to have a bit of both. And I don't like the to say balance. I like to say, I think we today, we always have this notion that things have to be an either or. And I'm actually against that. I think you can be an end. You can be patient and impetuous simultaneously. You can want to like drive and at the same time have aspects of calmness and et cetera. And I think patient is key, but it is married with as well, sometimes some haste, some like, uh, I call it like passion, like some drive. I think that's, right. that's good. Excellent. What about collaboration? Collaboration, they're all key. I, I, it's hard to basically rank them, but I feel collaboration actually stems from the last two as well. If we are not patient and have the right energy and passion, it's very hard to collaborate. If we're not open to ambiguity, it will be very hard to open to other opinions to basically be able to uh, understand opposite views. And collaboration can only happen when there is actually gaps in our knowledge. If, mm-hmm. if, there is no, if we know everything, there is no collaboration because you're already blocked the way. There is no right. way in for someone and you to have this kind of engagement. Yeah, and there's no need to rank them, but yeah, I just want to get your perspectives on each. Following up on collaboration, I'll go with two that sort of go together. They're a little different, but I would say openness and listening. Openness and listening. So I don't think actually you can listen if you're not open. Mm-hmm. I think vulnerability is really key to listening. And I even say something you... You can't actually listen and think simultaneously, even to that extent. I think listening is one of the purest form of just letting go of everything and being receptive. Mm-hmm. And when you're truly listening, you're open. When you're truly listening, you actually are not there almost, but you're just kind of soaking in, allowing things to come through and truly capturing them. If anything else is happening, whether you're thinking or trying to respond or Anything else, then you're not listening. The last one, how about reflectiveness and how does that relate? I mean, I think there's listening to others and then there's also listening to ourselves. So I wanted to highlight reflectiveness as its own kind of skill. So I think with reflectiveness, reflectiveness, on reflecting specifically, I think when we're reflecting on ourselves, one key aspect is being gentle and allowing for ourselves. It's a bit on the openness, but more on the vulnerability. Specifically, allowing ourselves to be gentle with who we are, because as well, I think when we try to reflect, we are very judgmental as well. We criticize too much. It's tendencies we have. And I think listening cannot happen when these things are happening. So when you're reflecting on anything, especially within you, I think it's really important to be gentle, be kind, actually, to you. Even if you want to abstract, create this distance from you to at least try to attribute these things to it. I think that helps a lot. 
Excellent. So Carla, I wanted to try something interesting here for our listeners. If they wanted to pause the podcast temporarily and practice going through a little bit of a reality check themselves on something that's a current challenge or goal of theirs, could you give them like a few steps to guide that process, what they might ask themselves or think about and sort of just, you know, it, it's just a practice run, but I thought that would be a great use of our time. Excellent. Let's take one of the principles and we'll do an exercise just on that. Let's take time. Okay. And let's consider you have a bandwidth of time. Let's say it's this much, you know, what, however you want. Let's say you have 100% of time now, right? And then I want you to chunk. First step is chunk everything, which is what I consider past. So anything you think you know, which currently is coming to your mind, anything which is your identity, like I'm an engineer, I'm a marketer, I'm a leader. I want you to put all of these things in the past. And I want you to give them a percentage, like 20%, 30%, 40%, whatever that is, okay? And then I want you to do the same for future. So anything, you know, what you'd like to be, goals, any assumptions that coming, any solutions that you're already thinking that you are, any predictions, like I want to be a CEO, I want you to bucket all of these things in a future bucket. And then I want you to give them a percentage. Write it down, I think it helps a lot. And then I want you to realize what is left for now? How much is left for now? And hypothetically speaking, start pushing the boundaries of the now a little bit wider and see what happens when you ignore thinking about all of these meetings that I need to schedule and all of the deadline and all of this planning that I miss and all of the thinking about who I am and like push the boundaries and the same applying what I'm expected of myself and all of the things that I should have done and, and all of these future. And then start expanding that. What happens to you now? Expand it as much as you can and then sit with that for a second. And I think one of the things you will realize is how much you start visualizing what's happening in that instance more so than what's happening outside of it. Because we have limited bandwidth to some extent or hypothetically for this example, we have limited bandwidth. So how much can you expand it? And write them down. Like, you know, anything which comes to mind, don't think about it too much. So do a stream of write and then bucket them and say, okay, I'm not worried about this. I'm not worried about this. Chunk, chunk and open the space. And let's see how that works. Awesome. Well, listeners, if you want to give that a shot, you can pause here for a couple of minutes and work through that and then come back or write it down and try it later. But could be a really good introduction to what you'll find in this book if you go further through it. Carlo, pivoting to a few more questions. Part of the process of this book, as you write about, was you interviewed a diverse group of multicultural, multilingual interviewees from different walks of life and different professions. And so I wanted to ask you about a few of those. Was there an interview that you did perhaps in the early going or at another stage of writing the book that really was most impactful in shaping the way you ended up proceeding and structuring the final book? Absolutely. I, I think every interview created an inflection point for me to some extent on which direction the book. And I actually rewrote the book at the end after I did all the interviews. So I, I had finished and then restructured the whole book. So one of the ones which I like to highlight, which really was a very powerful story in and by itself and, you know, gets you to just think for a second and reflect on like how severely sometimes we underestimate what's happening and how not recognizing it in time 
slows us down. And it, it was an interview with Ula Helen and where he talked about his father getting Alzheimer's. And what was extremely powerful is just the difference between how he reacted to it, recognizing that, okay, I have a limited time, like I need to deal with it and his mom a little bit. And he talks about it and saying it's, that it was not necessarily not a bad experience. Like, sorry, it was not that it was a good experience, but it wasn't a bad one as well. And the reason was because he caught on early that, okay, my dad's health is getting worse and I should do something about it. While his mom couldn't process that, she couldn't accept that. And sometimes that's really where, and that became very relevant in the book because the reality check is really at the end of that, recognizing among everything that's happening, even if it's hard for us to accept, even if it's difficult to recognize, even if all of these ifs happen, it could be better. It could be an improvement, not necessarily better, but it could be an improvement if we can recognize early and deal with it differently. And I think that's the power of it. Was there a story that stands out that somebody shared with you that you think of as being the most entertaining? Most entertaining. This is what strike people like, not necessarily right away, but I think it's quite entertaining because I no one has thought about it. When I interviewed Catherine and we were talking about servant leadership and visualizing ourselves. She gave this exercise, which I think is really cool. is like, make your thoughts as objects. So make your thoughts as objects and then start relating to them as objects and see how that relation shapes. And I think it's fun exercise as well. And it's quite out there because thoughts are our most personal thing, which we associate ourselves with especially our thoughts and playing this game with them and making them objects and looking at that relation. I think it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Excellent. Last one is what's the best feedback you've received from a reader? The best feedback I have received was recently and a reader said, I'm becoming anxious at work because of this new role and it's difficult and I'm trying it. But when I read your book, it kind of allows me to relax and calm down. And if anything, one of the biggest advantages of reality check is you get relief from the worry, from feeling that you're missing out on what is the most necessary or feeling missing out and removing a lot of this tension and burden. And I think that for me was like an amazing feeling. I, I can't necessarily describe fully, but yeah. uh, seeing that impact makes the whole difference. Right. Yeah. This day and age, that might be the best endorsement of all. Carlo, do you have another book other than yours that you would recommend to our listeners? It could be something that's on related themes or just anything else that you've read recently that you think they would get value from? Um, I have many books, but uh, I would say, let's see, there's a lot of famous authors, but uh, I'll pick probably less famous. Selfless Leadership by Catherine, which I interviewed in the last chapter, is a quite an intriguing exploration and how we see ourselves it tackles areas which I think most people don't necessarily address in their daily life on how they identify of who they are and I think it will be an interesting read and it's very hands-on so it's more like self-inquiry exercises I think people might be interested in Perfect. Well, listeners, you can find Reality Check on Amazon and on Carla's website, realitycheck.institute. And I'll put those links below. Carla, are there any other final ideas I haven't asked you about that you'd like to share or any other resources that you'd like to direct our listeners toward? Thanks, Ross. First off, thank you so much. This has been extremely enjoyable. I, I enjoyed the conversation. One resource, even though I'm not necessarily starting my next book yet, but I am doing a newsletter, which comes out every other week. 
So if you'd like to subscribe, you can go to realitycheck.institute and then you can go to the newsletter link there as well and subscribe. It really hones in on bringing up topics around awareness, innovation, and leadership with a poem every on a bi-weekly basis. Awesome. Yeah. Readers, check that out. And listeners, check that out. Go to yeah, Carlo's website, realitycheck.institute. And we'll put the link below. You can subscribe to his newsletter. You could find the book there and everything else that he's working on. So also please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Carlo, thanks so much for coming on The Authority. Thank you so much, Ross. I really enjoyed it. This has been the Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson.